Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. The Lord will first put that desire on your heart and He'll make it a delight. I'll take it a step further and He'll make it almost a consuming passion. Not only do you delight in it, you are driven by it. You are called to it. So once you are delighted in it, then God says, okay, now that desire that I put in your heart that you delight in now, now I'm going to realize it. Now I'm going to fulfill it. Now I'm going to give it to you. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Nehemiah. Most of us have heard the phrase, God will give you the desires of your heart. When some hear this, they believe that God will act as a genie and give them whatever they wish for. However, as Pastor J.D. teaches us, this piece of scripture really means that God plants those desires in us and fosters their growth until his desires are what guide, direct, and drive us. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. I have really been looking forward to the book of Nehemiah. I know I said that about Ezra, and I said that about First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Samuel. But no, this this book in particular has really been used of God in my life over the years in in a powerful way, and for a number of reasons. Chief of which is that it's been a great source of encouragement during those times when discouragement sets in. I'll be uh, even more specific. During the building project, when we were building out this church, there were many times where I just had my Bible open to Nehemiah and I was in the fetal position on the floor, just crying out to God, Oh God, what have we gotten ourselves into? Lord, you built this wall through Nehemiah in 52 days. I'm just saying two years. Can we just get this thing done? And But there was just so much that God used in and through the book of Nehemiah in my life personally. And Nehemiah, to me, is a great example of how that God enables us and really empowers us to keep our hands to the plow in spite of and even in light of the enemy's relentless spiritual attack, as we're going to see here tonight as God's people set their foot to do God's work. The enemy is right there, proportionately so. I love what Alan Redpath said. He said, there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For whenever the people of God say, Let us arise and build. Satan says, let me arise and oppose. We've talked about this in the past, how that we should never really worry when we're attacked by the enemy. That means we're doing something right, right? The time that we should be concerned is when the enemy leaves us alone. Because if you really think about it, that must mean that we pose no threat 
to the powers of darkness. See, Satan is not all-knowing, but what Satan does know is that, and I think about the Proverbs, it says the prostitute hunts and targets the precious life. In other words, the enemy will always seek and sort of single out and target the one whom God has a call on their life. Why? Because they pose a potential threat to the kingdom of darkness. Whenever we set our foot to do anything that God has called us to, we can be rest assured that the enemy is going to be right there to oppose and to attack. So by way of a brief introduction, Nehemiah, can, there's 13 chapters in this book. It can actually be divided into two sections. The first division is chapters 1 through 6, which are about the reconstruction of the walls. Keep in mind, the temple's already been rebuilt, but now Nehemiah is going to go and rebuild the wall. Then chapters 7 through 13 are about the re-instruction of God's people. So that's what we have really in store for us. One of the things that I'm hoping will become abundantly clear as we study this book is that God is able. I know that might sound at first to be simplistic, but God is able and God can do anything. He's able to do anything with anyone, anyone who's willing. So let's jump in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. You can just imagine the smell. They're still in the midst. The temple's done, but they're still in the midst of the charred remains of what used to be the great wall surrounding the temple. So the chapter begins with Nehemiah learning just how bad the conditions are, how much distress the Jews are in, the ones that had returned to Jerusalem from captivity. This after Hanani, who some believe may have actually been Nehemiah's brother or at least a relative of his, but he asks for a report concerning his people and the condition of what is taking place there in Jerusalem. And it seems though, as though even though the temple had been rebuilt, that now God's people that are there are living in great distress. And one of the reasons that they're in such distress and are a reproach, we're told, is because the wall around the city, along with the gates to the city, lay in a heap of ruin. Now, I have to understand that the wall was the security. And for a city to be unwalled meant that it was vulnerable to attack 
from the enemy. And this is the distress that they're in. And this is why now God is going to use Nehemiah to go and rebuild, miraculously so, this wall. Now notice in verse 4, Nehemiah's response. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Does this uh, sound a little bit like what, for those of you who are part of our Ezra study, does this not sound like what Ezra did? By the way, Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And when Ezra had received the report about the transgressions of God's people, uh, he did the same exact thing. I believe that he sat because he just couldn't stand. He was so impacted and even devastated by this report. Here's Nehemiah now hearing about the condition of God's people, the condition of God's temple, the, the city remained unwalled, and the wall being in this state of ruin. And upon hearing this, he is so grieved by this report. And like Ezra before him, he just mourns, he weeps. I imagine he weeps bitterly, and he prays, and he fasts. And we're told that this is for days. We don't know how many days, but several days it would appear. Here's what's interesting. Ezra was already in Jerusalem at the time that he received the report about the transgressions of God's people and had a very similar reaction. But here's the thing. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem ever in his life. His eyes have never beheld the temple. He has never seen the walls around the city. He's certainly never seen the gates around the city. And I would imagine that he knew those who had for sure went with Ezra in the second wave and returned to Jerusalem, some 1,500 men plus the women and the children. I would imagine that because Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries and they knew each other, so too did he know those that went. So he's inquiring about how, how were they doing? How is so-and-so doing? And Hanani tells him they're, they're not doing good, Nehemiah. And the reason they're not doing good is because the wall is not built. And they're vulnerable. And they're distressed because they're vulnerable. And you got to wonder, how is it that Nehemiah could have such a concern and such a compassion for a place that he's never seen? A temple that he's never been to. A wall that he's never beheld. And I believe that the answer is, is that God has put this in his heart. God has put this in his heart. You know in the Psalms where it says that, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As a new believer, I always thought that, wow, how cool is that? So you mean all I have to do is delight myself in the Lord and whatever I desire, he'll give it to me? <laughs> well, how cool is that? I'll get my list ready right now as I prepare to delight in the Lord. That's not what it means. Here's what it means. The Lord will first put that desire on your heart and he'll make it a delight. 
I'll take it a step further, and he'll make it almost a consuming passion. Not only do you delight in it, you are driven by it. You are called to it. So once you are delighted in it, then God says, okay, now that desire that I put in your heart that you delight in now, now I'm going to realize it. Now I'm going to fulfill it. Now I'm going to give it to you. In other words, the desire that he gives is the desire that he gave you in the first place. Where do you think this desire to be a part of in his concern for the people of God and the temple of God came from? It it had to come from the Lord. Couldn't be something that he just mustered up. Well, this is Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6. says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief, chief joy. This is above my chief joy. So the other day I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm not on Facebook very much. My wife's on my Facebook page more than I am. That's probably okay. But uh, somebody posted pictures of their trip to Israel. Not They didn't go with us, but it was them there on the Mount of Olives with the, you know, the uh, Temple Mount in the background. Notice I didn't say the Dome of the Rock. Well, I just said it, but the Temple Mount in the, in the background there with the Eastern Gate. And I got to tell you, I just, something leapt within my heart. It was kind of like, ah, oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> I, would, I love, there's something about Jerusalem. It's like a, a spiritual home of sorts. And I, I've heard it said this way, and this is what we always talk about when we take a group to Israel. And uh, that's that the first time you go, you see it with your eyes. But the second time you go, you see it with your heart. And there's just something that takes place in your heart. And Nehemiah is such a case where he just had a heart for this city, as we're going to see here momentarily, the city that God himself literally has put his name on. And we know that to be true from prior studies. Time doesn't permit tonight to get into that. Verse 5. And I said, now this is his prayer. This is Nehemiah's prayer. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. And, interesting, confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, verse 8, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen, and here it is, as a dwelling for my name. Now, verse 10, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Well, that's an interesting little addendum to a really great prayer. Well, a couple thoughts on this prayer, the first of which has to do with this reference to him being a cupbearer for the king. Now, this was a granted, a high position, uh, a very honorable position, but basically that's his skill set. He's a cupbearer for the king. Now, what are you saying? Well, now think about this. God is going to call a cupbearer to go to Jerusalem and engage in a massive, major construction project of rebuilding a wall around a city. Are you kidding me? What is his qualification? A cupbearer? Cupbearers aren't contractors. <laughs> cupbearers don't build walls. What does he know about building walls? Oh, and oh, by the way, as we're going to see, and as you probably already know, he's going to do it in 52 days. That's quite a cupbearer, if you ask me. Well, here's why I pointed out. God is going to get all the glory for what's going to happen through this man, Nehemiah. It is going to be a miraculous rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. And the reason? Well, the reason is God takes the cupbearers of this life and does the extraordinary and the supernatural so that in the end, even if the cupbearers want to take the credit for it, they can't. Only God gets the glory. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is my resume, by the way. Whenever I have somebody say, hey, did you go to Bible college or seminary or cemetery? (laughs) To which I usually, nothing wrong with that. But my response is, no, I barely graduated high school. I actually had somebody ask me this many years ago. This lady asked me, she says, so what are your qualifications to be a pastor? And I just said, well, my qualifications are 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I I basically turned there, and I'm going to read what I read, beginning of verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I know what I was when I was called. (laughs) I wasn't even a (laughs) cupbearer. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God, I love those two words. I love those two words. I love those two words. They change everything, don't they? But God, 
But God chose the foolish things of the world (laughs) to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. I'm going to put both hands up on that one. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You want to know why? I'm so glad you asked. The answer is in verse 29. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what I love when someone says to me, man, God really spoke to me through that teaching. I just say, praise the Lord. Because obviously you heard a different sermon than the one I preached. Well, you were in the right church. You were here in this church, but the Holy Spirit took my words and tailor fit them to that need in your heart that only God knows, because God sees the heart. And boy, I tell you, it takes the pressure off of me. I don't have to be clever, good thing, because I'm not. I don't have to be, you know, savvy. I don't have to be slick. Thank God. I don't even have to look slick. Really thank God for that. But all I have to do is just be faithful to the calling and preach the word. And he does all the rest. He does all the rest. I mean, after all, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through anyone. And so I like having donkey underneath my name. In fact, I'm sometimes tempted to have my cards changed and just have it say, Uh, Senior donkey. I'm the senior donkey. Second thought is the content of Nehemiah's prayer. Did you notice something striking in that prayer as I read it and as you followed along? Did it have a resemblance to what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really where Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I mean, you know it, backwards and forwards, right? Well, I believe this is really how Nehemiah prayed. One of the best acronyms I've ever heard for how to pray is ACTS, like the book of ACTS. And the A is for acknowledge, the C is for confess, the T is for thanksgiving, And the S is for supplication. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor J.D.'s teaching in the book of Nehemiah today. Here at In Spirit and Truth, we strive to bring God's Word to you in a way that blesses your life, but also challenges you to make a difference in this world. Nehemiah was a man who made a great impact, even though he wasn't serving as a priest or spiritual guide of any kind. God still used him and still uses ordinary people today. If you'd like to listen again to today's message, you'll find it at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Just click on Listen. Having access to messages from God's Word adds some great encouragement to the pauses in your day and helps to keep you focused on Him. 
We'd also like to tell you more about the Mideast Prophecy Update, where Pastor J.D. discusses current events and their prophetic importance each Friday and Saturday. Here to tell you more about this is Pastor J.D. Thanks, Josh. Followers of Jesus Christ have this anticipating of his soon return at the rapture of the church, especially with everything that's happening in the world today. I'm of the belief that we are seeing key Bible prophecies beginning to come to pass in real time. And it's for this reason that we do these weekly prophecy updates as we look up and lift up our heads, knowing our redemption draws ever so near. This is what Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 28. Our hope here at In Spirit and Truth is that believers will be ready and non-believers will get ready by coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there's still time. Thanks, Pastor J.D. That's all we have for today, but join us again right here on In Spirit and Truth. Dude.